This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's now time for Activate, a show brought to you by Amnesty International. evening Christchurch and welcome to the final uh, Activate show uh, on Plains FM for 2022. So Amnesty International's Human Rights in the News and this is our 12th show of the year and the final show of the year. So thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, we've got a uh, fantastic show lined up for you. Well, I think it's a fantastic show. Hopefully you'll agree. Uh, we'll have some human rights and the news from Greg. He'll take us through what's going on around the world. Not always a positive thing, but it's important that we keep ourselves informed about what's going on. Uh, there is some good news coming up, and that will be next month. We'll tell you some of the good news that's happening. Um, the interview this month will be with Ritodi Chakraborty. He's a lecturer in human geography at the University of Canterbury, and I'll be interviewing him. His interview will actually be in two parts. There's a uh, roughly 15 to 20 minute interview for our December show and a 15 to 20 minute uh, segment for the January show. So our focus will be on him because he's a pretty interesting character uh, and his research interests uh, around climate change, uh, the Himalayas, um, and uh, yeah, rural migrant masculinity in the Himalayas. It's all really fascinating stuff, and so I've very much enjoyed interviewing him, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that interview as well uh, for December and January. We've also got a uh, Right for Rights report, so December, January, around the world, Amnesty International takes part um, in a global coordinated campaign for set cases and uh, finally we'll uh, wrap it up but yeah thanks very much for tuning in here on Plains FM Good evening Christchurch and uh, thanks again for tuning in to Activate uh, Amnesty International here on Plains FM. Uh, very privileged to be able to interview tonight and again for our January show, uh, Ritodi Chakraborty, who's a lecturer in human geography at the University of Canterbury. And uh, Ritodi will be, and I will be speaking about um, climate change and its uh, impact on human rights in, in very broad terms. And people may have seen a recent press release from Amnesty International, uh, particularly with regards to the recent uh, last month, November, uh, COP27 that was held in Egypt. But anyway, without further ado, uh, Ritodi, welcome to the show and thanks very much for coming here. Hey, kia ora. Um, thank you so much for having me on here, Stefan. And uh, yeah, I hope I can say something of substance and help uh, help you in any way possible and hopefully learn from you. Yeah, thanks very much, Ritodi. You come uh, with uh, strong recommendations and introductions from a mutual friends. So I'm sure you have many things of substance to say. So uh, look, um, Ritodi, uh, you know, I, w I went to the, the link on your University of Canterbury page and, and had a bit of a read about uh, your academic background, but I, it's certainly 
as an introduction to our listeners. Maybe you could just tell us a, a bit about yourself and uh, who you are and, and how you came to be in this part of the world and, and, and what you do to fill in your days. Yeah, no, that that is a great question. That would be the whole interview if I answered it. <laughs> but um, I've had a I've had a bit of an interesting life. I um, I grew up in a small steel and mining town in eastern India, right next to the Bengal Delta, where uh, part of my family were refugees of the partition of India, and um, a lot of men in my family used to, you know, essentially lived and died in in uh, steel t- uh, mills and beating steel and mining and all that, and uh, it was very interesting for me growing up to see firsthand the impacts both of development as well as conservation, where on one hand you had a state that was trying to live up to its development aspirations, which in many ways had been handed to it by its, let's say, colonial precursors. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you had the state doing a similar thing by trying to kind of capture land in terms of conservation, which which would then dispossess people of, you know, their their access to that land. So it was a very interesting thing to see how development and conservation was two sides of the same coin. And so I was lucky to, you know, get a scholarship and go to the United States to study when I was 18. And I studied biology and physics and chemistry and all that stuff. And quite soon I realized that (laughs) the real... The real, um, if, if I had to understand what was really going on, I would have to study politics. So I did a master's in environmental politics in Washington, D.C. And then I actually came back to India and I did a lot of work around agrarian justice, especially looking at how, uh, especially in solidarity with farming families that were standing up against biopatenting. So germplasm being patented by uh, international corporations and also just uh, farmers that were asking for supply chains that were more equitable, right? Like each step of the supply chain, whether it was export or domestic or what have you. Um, I spent a lot of time working in the Himalayan region, um, in the Indian Himalayas, and then in Bhutan as well. And then, yeah, after that, I did a PhD in human geography. And then I've since then worked in ch- a little bit in China and Western China, and uh, I've been in Aotearoa last three, three and a half years doing some work around looking at indigenous cartography, uh, future landscape planning, working uh, closely with um, some Tangata Fenua and Mana Fenua partners as well to try and essentially understand how do we uh, work on just uh, knowledge systems and just social systems. Mm. Oh, fantastic. It's, it's quite a journey from uh, the Bingo Delta <laughs> area to Christchurch. Sure. Yeah, excellent. So uh, maybe um, could you explain some of the, the – I mean, you gave us a, a great introduction there of, of the work around the um, uh, cartography of uh, Tangata Whenua, some of the agrarian justice issues. Um, maybe we could uh, talk a little bit more about that and uh, the work you've been doing with the Indigenous and agrarian communities uh, to explore pathways of environmental uh, and social justice that you seem to be quite focused on in your studies sure. and research. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I would say there's two big uh, things that I focus on in my work, both my activism as well as my research. One big thing is kind of understanding how young people, uh, especially rural young people, are making sense of social ecological change, right? And this is something that I've been studying in the Himalayas for a while, especially with a focus on young men, um, to try and understand 
as these agrarian landscapes are transitioning and transforming, how are young people responding, right? Because we have this um, we have this understanding of rurality as being an old place. And part of the problem of, let's say, constructing the rural as an older place is that we miss out on the understanding what young people in rural areas want. And what we see in across, you know, in the Indian Himalayas, for example, is this, you know, meeting point of state building as well as uh, uh, sort of, you know, like rural communities themselves wanting certain kind of futures, as well as young people being given certain dreams, but not being given the tools with which to achieve those dreams. So a lot of the work I do is in, uh, you know, understanding how young people are helping in many ways uh, challenge and put forth their own vision of how they want their region to look like, mm. um, which kind of brings to development policy as well as, you know, a lot of work around food production as well as transport, communication, what have you, uh, a different vision, right? Because often in a lot of, I would say, the, the global south or the devel- a developing country, whatever you want to call it, there is this sense that youths are moving to the cities, right? Big cities and metros. So it's very important to kind of get the voices of youth that are kind of mobile, they're kind of moving, circulating between these spaces. And the kinds of stories that emerge from that, that's that's sort of like one of the pushes of my work. The other thing that I uh, focus on is kind of uh, looking at knowledge justice, right? So science in itself, right, is because, uh, look, there is this interesting superstructure, if we can call it that, which creates reality, right? You have science, you have the state, and you have market, right? Now, often it's very easy to see the state and to see the market because they're very visible. But science is a little more insidious where on one hand, there is this threat of science denialism, which is an actual threat, which is a problematic thing. But then on the other hand, we have something called science imperialism, which is uh, this notion that knowledge plurality is actually something which is which detracts from our pursuance of an equitable society, which is a problematic thing because science in itself is rooted within a certain political context. And the what I try and do is kind of understand how the politics of science itself emerges within our spaces of learning, right? So that could be climate science, that could be land use change, that could be, you know, agrarianism, what have you. And that's why some of the work I'm doing here in Aotearoa is using some of those elements of Maturanga Māori working with practitioners here to not actually look for integration of knowledge, but to pursue a plurality of knowledge and have these spaces where that knowledge kind of engages with each other, but those knowledges don't always have to see eye to eye. So how do we create a system like that of knowledge justice where multiple knowledges are um, seen as valid while walking this tightrope between science denialism and science imperialism? I know it's, I, I just said a lot of very complicated things. No, Apologies. No. Yeah, no, 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 no. But it was certainly um, you certainly touched on a, a lot of issues there, and it was all 
very interesting. Um, and I think, you know, I guess recently, it's far from what we're talking about, but with COVID recently and the science denialism around that. And uh, so we're all very much aware, I guess, in popular and mainstream media um, the, the, and social media, maybe the, the strength or the impetus that science denialism can pick up and the dangers around it. In your work and in your areas of interest, um, how, just to explore that a little bit more around the, the science, that tightrope you describe around uh, climate change. Right. Um, what, what are your experiences and work within that area? So, you know, there was this, there's a couple of things that have happened um, over the past 15 or 20 years, right? There has been a very, um, I would say, active uh, industry that has been peddling certain myths about climate change, right? The fact that it's not real or the facts that it's not caused by humans and what have you, right? And that is a very powerful industry. And there is fossil fuel involved. There is governments involved. I mean, I don't need to go in depth. People can Google that and find out. And there is a lot out there. Um, however, what has happened is as a response to uh, this kind of, a, let's say, uh, almost like this machinery of denialism, um, scientists and particularly physical uh, and, you know, um, like natural scientists have almost reverted into algorithms, right? What they've said is that, um, you know, in order to justify in order to prove that what we are saying is legitimate, we're going to quantify it even further. We're going to remove even more humanity from our science so that you can't find any chinks in our armor, right? So what we see is a form of uh, like the rise of, you know, artificial intelligence and the rise of land use change science where, you know, algorithmic environmental governance has become this mainstay of trying to fight back against detractors who say that this is not real, right? Mm. But what we know from, you know, decades of research as well as just, you know, people on the field and activists is that throwing more information at someone who doesn't ideologically believe in you actually doesn't change their mind at all. So it's not a volume business, right? It's not a question of if only we had 25 more models, if only our remote sensing data or satellite data was better. Actually, it's not that at all, right? Part of the issue why we have this, you know, problem of science denialism is because science itself is a very, has become a very opaque institution, right? It in many ways can uh, almost function like a religion where scientists are these priests who speak a certain language, which only they can understand. And unless you speak that language, you need them to translate it for you. Part of what needs to happen instead of, you know, depending completely on these mathematical algorithms is actually science society interfaces becoming more transparent, right? We need more and more what we call climate translators. So, you know, across the world, you see people saying humanities and arts are a key way through which to reach people, right? While numbers are one thing, if you can't add a human face behind it, that number ceases to have the impact that it should have, even politically, right? So that's one of the things we see is this rise of algorithmic governance, which, you know, can dehumanize, can actually 
uh, almost delegitimize indigenous knowledge by saying that this cannot be crunched into you know a, a, a climate model or a, or a future pathway mm-hmm. okay oh, yeah really interesting uh, reflections and thoughts there thanks Ritardi. and I guess it's a good uh, segue into uh, my next question which was looking at some of your research interests around climate change and climate justice there's a, a 2021 publication by you that looked at climate change the IPCC or the International Panel on Climate Change and uh, climate justice in the Himalayas so it sort of integrates a, a few topics there that would be of interest to our listeners. And I'm just wondering if, if uh, I mean, pulling one of your publications sure, out there, sure, but yeah, if you yeah. can maybe comment on that one there. Yeah, no, thank you for yeah uh, engaging with that. So this publication came about because a friend of mine and a colleague, Pasang Sherpa, who's you know a really wonderful and quite famous Sherpa anthropologist, um, she had engaged with the IPCC knowledge uh, production process in a past iteration. And then I I was part of this current IPCC AR6 um, project, you know. And our both our experiences were somewhat frustrating. And we decided to kind of pool those experiences together and kind of write about the ways in which the IPCC was failing to capture um, what was real ma- what was really manifesting on the ground in the Himalayas. So there's three things, right? The first thing that we saw um, was that, you know, this thing called climate reductionism, what that means is there's this uh, there's this kind of like ideological or, or rational point out there which almost uh, supports sort of a hierarchy of causes why we see something, right? And there is this powerful way of thinking about the world which we see in colonial ecology, which we see in colonization, which was called environmental determinism. What that meant is, you know, you you see that with writers like Jared Diamond who wrote Collapse. You kind of see this thing that what they sort of claim is that the environment creates culture. Right, a certain environment creates a certain culture. So, you know, colonial administrators would say, "Oh, the reason people in the tropics are so, let's say, they didn't achieve much is because the climate is so hot. They need to take a nap." Right, and I'm oversimplifying here, but the point is, environmental determinism served as a really powerful tool to, uh, in many ways, justify why the colonizers could colonize. Right. Now, this was really, really kind of disproven and dismantled um, in the last 30, 40 years. However, this has now been replaced by climate reductionism. What that means is uh, no matter, you know, anytime we see a big event happening, right? Like, for example, the Pakistani floods that just happened or salinization in the lower delta in Bengal. Moment we see something like that, there is this... uh, you know, causal pathway drawn from, oh, that's climate change, right? Um, We see a war in Syria. We say, well, that's climate change. Uh, My friend and I, we were just kidding, like just joking around and we were saying it's come to the point where we say things like, oh, there is no, there's, you know, there there aren't any spaces for LGBTQ friendly spaces in, you know, Christchurch. And then we were like, oh, but that's because of climate change, Mm. right? So you you see the, the, the reductionist, uh, problem here, mm. because if we go back to those examples, right? Um, 
salinization in the lower delta in, in Bangladesh is actually caused primarily due to the shrimp industry. And it's caused because of the really, uh, I would say, disastrous way in which embankments were created by the British and then maintained by the, the modern uh, Bangladeshi state, which stopped silt-laden freshwater from entering the ocean. Mm. So flooding and salinization has, yes, there is a little bit of climate change in there, but most of it is not climate change, mm. right? But drawing that causal line and is, is a very problematic climate reductionist situation, right? So that was one thing that we kind of delved into. And the other big thing that we sort of looked into was this notion of knowledge justice, right? If we are um, kind of driven by this notion that we have to find legitimacy through quantification, we have to find legitimacy through this uh, creation of a world that really um, fits exactly with the way models are describing it, then this plurality of voices on the ground are completely lost. Mm. So one of the quotes from that work is this um, farmer from the Indian Himalayas saying to me, why do you keep asking us about the climate? Nature is not what oppresses us. And so there is this sense that things like the caste system, things like patriarchy, things like predatory capitalism or geopolitics are having an incredible amount of effect on these people's lives. And reducing all that to climate change then completely changes. Well, what we end up doing is we end up focusing on one or two climate society relationships mm. from a whole spectrum of climate society relationships. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for reflecting on that paper and... Uh, I guess um, yeah, my, my simple man's take on it, you know, is uh, yeah, not everything can be reduced to a, a one-minute news bite at six o'clock on Channel Three or One. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So no, thanks. Look, um, Richard, I think we'll uh, take a break in our interview there. Uh, thanks very much for speaking. And to our listeners, um, we're going to uh, be listening to the second part of our interview uh, with um, Ritari uh, Chakraborty, lecturer, Human Geography at University of Canterbury, uh, January twenty twenty-three. Thanks very much, Ritari. Thank you so much for having me. Kia ora everyone, this is Greg from the Activate team. For this month's Human Rights in the News story, I just wanted to talk to you about the announcement of the Nobel Peace Prize for 2022, which was announced in Oslo, Norway on the 7th of October. Um, I'm just going to read some information from the nobelprize.org website. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2022 to one individual and two organisations. This year's Peace Prize is awarded to human rights advocate Alice Bielatsky from Belarus and the human rights organization from Russia called Memorial and also the Ukrainian human rights organization Center for Civil Liberties. Alice Bielatsky was one of the initiators of the democracy movement that emerged in Belarus in the mid-1980s. He has devoted his life to promoting democracy and peaceful development in his home country. Among other things, he founded the organization Vyazna, Spring, in 1996 in response to the controversial constitutional amendments that gave the president dictatorial powers and also triggered widespread demonstrations. Vyazna evolved into a broad-based human rights organisation that has documented and protested against the authorities' use of torture against political prisoners. Government authorities have um, continuously tried to 
for Bielatsky. They've politely sought to silence Mr. Bielatsky. He was in prison from 2011 to 2014. There was large-scale demonstrations against the regime in 2020, and he was again arrested. He is still detained without trial today. Despite tremendous personal hardship, he has not yielded an inch in his fight for human rights and democracy in Belarus. The Human Rights Organization uh, Memorial uh, from Russia was established in 1987 by human rights activists in the former Soviet Union who wanted to ensure that the victims of the communist regime's oppression would never be forgotten. Nobel Peace Prize laureate Andrei Sakharov and human rights advocate Svetlana Ganushkina were amongst the founders. Memorial is based on the notion that confronting past crimes is essential in preventing new ones. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Memorial grew to become the largest human rights organization in Russia. In addition to establishing a center of documentation on victims of the Stalinist era, Memorial also compiled and systematized information on political oppression and human rights violations in Russia's, Russia as well. Um, the Center for Civil Liberties was founded in Kiev in 2007 for the purpose of advancing human rights and democracy in Ukraine. The center has taken a stand to strengthen Ukrainian civil society and pressure the authorities to make Ukraine a full-fledged democracy. To develop Ukraine into a state governed by the rule of law, Center for Civil Liberties has actively advocated that Ukraine become affiliated with the International Criminal Court. After Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, Center for Civil Liberties has engaged in efforts to identify and document Russian war crimes against the Ukrainian civilian population. In collaboration with international partners, the Center is playing a pioneering role with a view to holding the guilty parties accountable for their crimes. So by awarding the Nobel Peace Prize for 2022 to Alex Berliatsky Memorial and the Centre for Civil Liberties, the Norwegian Nobel Committee wishes to honour three outstanding champions of human rights, democracy and peaceful coexistence in the neighbour countries Belarus, Russia and Ukraine. Through their consistent efforts in favour of humanist values, anti-militarism and principles of law, this year's laureates have revitalised and honoured Alfred Nobel's vision of peace and fraternity between nations, a vision that is most needed in the world today. Well, good listeners of Christchurch, that is a wrap for another year, December 2022, uh, for Activate, Amnesty International's Human Rights on the News, here on Plains FM in Ototahi Christchurch. Thank you very much for tuning in and all your support this year. Uh, I think we uh, had a good show today, or tonight. Um, uh, listening to Ritodi uh, Chakraborty, who will be joining us again. Uh, for January's show, the second part of his interview, which um, uh, you would have listened to the first part tonight. Um, so, a big thanks to all our supporters out there, those who tune in regularly every month, uh, or who download the podcast uh, in the coming days, for those who share the uh, podcast. A uh, big thanks to Laura and Charlie here on Plains FM uh, for all their help, uh, Nikki, the station manager, all the other staff, uh, this interview was certainly done under trying circumstances. There's some um, studio moving across the road as the building at the other complex undergoes um, strengthening and uh, engineering work. Um, 
all those Amnesty supporters out there who campaign on behalf of human rights uh, with your letters, your supports, your sharing of knowledge, uh, your solidarity with our prisons of conscience, your financial contributions to Amnesty. Uh, if you want to know more about the cases we've uh, talked about, uh, what Amnesty does in general, you can go to amnesty.org.nz. Um, big thanks to my colleagues, Greg, Kerry and Catherine for their support this year. And uh, look forward to broadcasting again in January next year with the second part of our interview and all the stuff we can look forward to January um, or 2023. Thanks again. Have a great Christmas and New Year's from all the team at Activate here on Planes FM. I want you to get to